I'm going to be a mighty king, so enemies beware. Well, I've never seen a king of beasts with quite so little hair. I'm going to be the main event like no king was before. I'm brushing up on looking down. I'm working on my roar. For those of you who grew up in the 90s watching Disney animated films or live musicals, you may have been keen on recognizing the famous lines I just recited. Written by Elton John and Tim Rice, these lines were featured in the song, I Just Can't Wait to Be King, in Disney's The Lion King. The context of the song draws us into the fictional world centered around Simba, a young lion club set on being the king of the Pride Lands one day in the near future. And really, the song speaks of young Simba's, uh, Simba's eagerness to be king of the jungle, which he perceives as his rightful position, a, a place of power and rule. And as he struts and strolls along the savannah, singing, I just can't wait to be king, he's full of youthful pride and determination cast against the words in our sarcastic counsel of Zazu, the hornbill bird that accompanies him. I just can't wait to be king captures the heart of youthful aspirations toward a position of power and rule. Simba has no idea of the responsibilities that lie ahead with leadership assuming the throne, something his father Mufasa desires to prepare young Simba for as the current king of Pride Rock. But as the movie progresses and the plot thickens, we find it's not so much Simba that is the villain or antagonist in this film, but rather Mufasa's younger brother, Scar, who proves to be a danger for the pride of lions and their well-being. In fact, it is Scar shown to be diabolic, biolic, bio, diabolically evil in his intentions, scheming out for a thirst for power and position for selfish reasons, rather than looking out for the good of his fellow lions of the pride. He's shown to be a danger from within the lion community, evident by his murderous actions to take the life of his very own brother. In Judges 9, the danger of God's for God's covenant people actually comes from within Gideon's family. Abimelech is the family's scar, the bloodthirsty, power-hungry man who desires to ascend the throne of power, whose evil will uh, throw evil actions from a sinful heart leaves a dark legacy. And it's a depressing conclusion to the house of Gideon's cycle in the book of Judges. And this is no Disney movie concerning a human hero, but it actually is a horror story concerning a human tyrant, which really corresponds with the sign of the times. With each passing cycle of disobedience, oppression, and deliverance in the book of Judges, things get worse and worse among God's people. And what I'm talking about is their spiritual condition their idolatrous lust, their unrepentant hearts, their worldliness, their assimilation to the surrounding culture rather than being set apart for God becomes all the more apparent. So we must not lose sight of this broader context for why Abimelech is even brought up and talked about in Judges chapter 9. For understanding Abimelech as a self-appointed pseudo-judge provides us with a clearer picture of the spiritual condition of God's covenant people at that time. And what we learn about God's people in relation to the surrounding nations and cultures is that idolatry is rampant. Their devotion to God is half-hearted at best or non-existent at worst. This was their new normal. 
a greater, greater absence of true devotion and faithfulness to Yahweh is evident. God's people think, act, and live more and more like the surrounding pagan nations around them. And God's people become more and more Canaanized as they sought to do what was right in their own eyes. We're made aware of this reality at the end of Judges chapter 8, after Gideon died, where we read, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after Baals and made Baal bereath their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Judges 9 teaches us what happens when God is not king. For what we see instead is one whose name means my father is king, seeks to make himself king. And that's the significance, the meaning behind Abimelech's name, given to him by his father Gideon when he had a child with a concubine from the land of Shechem. So while Gideon had the seeds of desire to act and function as king, all the while denying it with his lips, Abimelech doesn't play the false humility or subtlety card. He wants and desires the apple of his eye, and, which is power and control. And it shouldn't surprise us because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Despite the good that Gideon did as God's instrument of deliverance, his life was marred by the ephod incident, taking on many wives through polygamy and naming his son Abimelech, which is my father is king. And what we see is the snowball effect of sinful idolatry impact the subsequent generation of God's people after he dies. And so as each judge spirals down in character and in immorality as we recognize, hey, this judge is worse than the one before. Maybe Pastor Joey is right. I shouldn't name my son Samson. I should name him Othniel instead. It would serve us well to observe a correlation, a striking parallel of the, the main human characters of the judges and a subsequent downward spiral of spiritual character and immorality amongst God's people in relation to King Yahweh. So what we see in Judges 9 is the dangers of godless leadership marked by selfish ambition and pride. When one's life, according to Abimelech, is about my way, meanwhile, God's way can take the highway. And this is the story of the Bramble King, who ultimately experiences divine retribution when he's judged by the one true king. And so the main point of Judges 9 is this, if you're taking notes, that God's justice, God's justice ensures that unrepentant people pay for their evil deeds and wrong by facing his judgment. His justice ensures unrepentant people pay for their evil deeds and wrong by facing his judgment. And our passage can be kind of be broken down into three uh, main parts, three movements for us to consider as this horrific story unravels. The first is that Abimelech's bloody rise to power is in the first six verses. So this historical account of God's people picks up after Gideon's death where the spotlight's now on his son. One thing to keep in mind is that Gideon is referred to by his, his other name, Jeroboam, for the entirety of chapter 9, okay? So Gideon is Jeroboam, okay? And the, that title was given to him because he destroyed his family's altar of Baal, and, which represents that he was contending with Baal in Judges 6.32, but as Abimelech grows up, his son, he takes on this name very seriously. Since he was born to a Shechemite concubine, he would potentially pose a real threat of rivalry against Gideon's other sons. 
70 sons. So he approaches his mom's side of the family, the people of Shechem, with a, a seemingly modest and level-headed proposition, proposal in verse 2. And here's his unforgettable pitch as he throws his own name in the running for office. If there's any political campaign managers in here, take notice and cringe. His whisper campaign, which spreads amongst the people, goes something like this. Wouldn't it be a lot better for you to be under the rule of one man such as myself rather than 70 other men's sons of Jeroboam? After all, think of the bureaucracy. Think of the inefficiencies when by just having me, you could have expediency. Forget the potential for checks and balances. Do you really want the structures of accountability and oversight in, my, in your leadership? Why bother with all that when you can just have me? Oh, by the way, did I mention we're blood-related, right? Come on, wouldn't you support me? We're like family. And family's got to look out for each other, right? For re readers such as ourselves, when we read this, our discernment radar goes off, right? Our spidey senses are tingling. Danger, Will Robinson. But despite the self-absorbed and conceited platform that Abimelech grounds his campaign in, despite the poor reasoning behind his pitch, his family, the people of Shechem, they buy into it, hook, line, and sinker. They get campaign fished, easy peasy. And at this point, we must not lose sight of the geographical importance of Shechem in this story as well. It was at Shechem where Joshua united the people of Israel after the exodus and the conquest to the promised land so that they might renew their covenant with the Lord, Joshua 24, 25. It was there that they renewed their commitment to follow and obey God. But fast forward now to the time of Judges. This is a, there's a temple for Baal in Shechem used to finance Abimelech's rise to power over Israel. So while Joshua tried to unite the people of Israel around God's covenant, here is Abimelech trying to unite Israel not around God's covenant, not around God and his glory, but around himself as king for his own glory. But there's one roadblock. What's standing in his way from getting what he wants? These 70 brothers. So Gideon's 70 sons who apparently pose a threat to his self-appointed claim to rule. But let's consider how he deals with his brothers. He takes 70 shekels, of silver offered to him by the idolatrous temple reserves and basically hires a bunch of thugs and goons, not noble soldiers or knights in shining armor by any measure, but the descriptive words here are worthless and reckless. And what it does is it clues us in that these were lowlifes who functioned as contract hitmen, ones that didn't have anything better to do, were cheap to hire and had no scruples. So he visits Gideon's house located at Ophrah and proceeds to snuff out, that is, execute all but one of 70 brothers. The story of Bimelech's bloody rise to power is a direct legacy of Gideon's decisions and actions that reveal that while Gideon acknowledged the rule of kingship of Yahweh with his lips, while he professed certain beliefs with his lips, he lived for the passions and sinful desires of his flesh still. Right head knowledge did not grip his affection to love God wholeheartedly. It didn't impact him. And here we see kind of the outcome of that, sin unchecked. His heart was actually shown to drift from God. And so Abimelech, the son of the Shechemite concubine, who has no claim over any inheritance, who is distant from the rest of his brother, takes matters into his own hands. He dishonors the house of Gideon by murdering his brothers. 
half-brothers. This honors the good and honorable aspects of Gideon's legacy because Gideon, yeah, he did fall, okay? He, he did have moments where he was not faithful in the end, but he still was used by God to deliver them from the Midianites. And so what Abimelech did was dishonor him and his legacy by killing his sons. And the scene tragically ends in verse 6. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and they made him king. And that should sadden us. You can imagine this coronation ceremony taking place despite everyone knowing in their hearts the slaughter that just took place outside. Dead bodies of Gideon's sons possibly rotting in the elements outside while the leaders of Shechem and Beth Melo come together in some sort of solemn and righteous ceremony to crown Abimelech king? How can they trust the guy that just kills his own brothers like a tyrant? Where's the shock and outrage by God's people who witness such horrors? Do they not have any decency, any moral compass to slow down and consider just who they were about to recognize as their ruler? The kind of person they wanted leading them? The irony is that they trusted a guy that appealed to blood relations to Gideon, yet plotted the bloody murder of Gideon's son. 70 sons, 70 shekels from the Baal temple located in Shechem. And that brings us now to the second movement of this story, starting in verse 7. Abimelech's evil treachery is called out. So Jotham, Gideon's youngest son, who escapes, who survives this painful and traumatizing uh, slaughter of his fellow brothers, uh, in the middle of this ridiculous coronation ceremony, Jotham crashes the party, or rather ceremony. And he puts some safe distance as he positions himself up on a hill, on a mound, Okay. So here he is, higher elevation. It helps your voice project when you're higher, right? That makes sense. And also, it puts yourself distant so you can kind of hit and run, you know, afterwards because, yeah, you don't want to be there after you're about to, like, rebuke these guys, right? So he puts some safe distance between the people below, and he interrupts Abimelech's little Game of Thrones moment and begins to tell a fable. Yes, you heard right, a fable. It's a story that features plants or nature, which gives or takes on human qualities for the purpose of illustrating a moral lesson. It's very similar to a parable. I'm not an arborist, but when it comes to classification of trees, um, uh, I don't need to know a lot. Uh, The way Jotham tells this fable, it's, it's a clear regression through the mention of different kinds of trees. The trees represent God's people, Israel. And so these trees seek out different trees to rule over them. They go first to an olive tree. Who doesn't love olives, right? Excellent topping on food until Costco got rid of that on their combo pizza. Healthier oil to cook with. At least that's what I tell myself when I slap it on my uh, pesto pasta that I make. I love olive trees, right? They're useful. But the olive tree declines. So the trees go to another likely candidate, the fig tree. Now, let's see, there's fig newtons that they make. I believe it's something enjoyable and healthy, though maybe not exactly my first choice of snack when I'm strolling down Safeway or the lucky snack aisle. I can tolerate figs in my fancy arugula salad or an open-faced sandwich, tartine. Fruit's generally pleasant and less polarizing than, say, like durian. I guess it's still a tree that's qualified to lead other trees. But the fig tree declines. Next, a grapevine, grapes. Grapes communion juice, wine, 
Napa Valley, okay, okay, I can get behind that. But even the grapevine tree declines. So finally, out of desperation, the trees turn to the bramble bush, thorn bushes. And check out the response of the bramble in verse 15. A thorn bush inviting trees to take refuge in the shade it provides. Now, thorn bushes don't exactly provide shade, especially for trees that are much larger. And so the bramble is utterly useless when it comes to casting a shadow large enough to provide meaningful shade, which symbolizes security, protection. How could the trees be so stupid in trusting the bramble for something it's unqualified to provide? Despite being unqualified, look at the demanding tone of the thorn bush towards the trees. If they don't take refuge, fire will come out and burn them. The bramble represents King Abimelech, the bramble king. He is self-exalting, unable to provide protection for God's people, and has all the potential hallmarks for destructive leadership. Brambles make good fuel for fire, but poor kings to reign. Choose wisely or you will be burned, both figuratively and literally. So in verses 16 to 20, before he ducks out and escapes for his life, he tells the application of the fable. He uses a bunch of if statements. The main ones to focus on in your Bibles, if you're actually looking, is in verse 16 and verse 19. Both of them start with, if you acted in good faith and integrity, and those are words that are meant to call them out. It functions rhetorically for them to examine themselves and warns of consequences if they are found to not have acted with integrity. And he's cursing them, not like using profane words, uh, profanity, but wishing with eager desire that they will pay for their deeds, that judgment will come upon them. Jotham is trying to call God's people to examine their hearts. He's pointing the finger at them because their fellow covenant people were just murdered and now you're going to crown this guy king and party it up afterwards like nothing's happened? Brush it under the rug? And don't miss this. Please don't miss this. The main outrage, the main reason the finger is being pointed at Abimelech is the deeper issue at hand, which is sinful betrayal that occurred. They committed treachery against Gideon. And Gideon was God's instrument of deliverance. And in doing so, they committed treachery against God. Maybe God's people, the Israelites, were preoccupied with maybe, oh, well, this guy will give us constitutional reforms. Or they, maybe they were too enamored with, with politics, so they became so fixated on whatever Abimelech offered them. They just bought it to make him king. So they blindly put their hope in him despite some red flags. They put their blind trust in an evil man. And in doing so, murdering his family seems to be okay now. Let it slide. And so the agreeableness of having Abimelech, the murderer, be their king was a reflection of their own godlessness. There was no God for Israel. What, thou shalt not murder? God says something like that because it goes against his very own will and character? Oh, let's make this guy our king. And that's the human condition when blinded by idolatry. When we're tempted with what idols promises us or what they will give us or in ways that will fulfill us or make us happy. And when we sin, we embrace our rebellion against a holy and just God. And really, I think we see that just in the first six verses up until now in Judges 9. 
the dangers of unqualified leaders being idolized and our subsequent lack of trust and devotion in God. While this isn't the only relevant principle for us to draw from Jonathan's fable as we continue, because ultimately God is behind this story, and so God is the main character at work, I believe there is something instructive for us as the people of God today. Just like how Jesus used parables to illustrate a, a profound spiritual lesson, or how Samuel used a story to confront David to look in the mirror to see himself in the story before declaring to him, you are that man. It would serve us well to consider how we wrongly place too much trust sometimes in fallen and imperfect human leaders. We think human leaders, politics, or elections will deliver us, that they will bring us salvation, and we will experience a heaven-on-earth type of experience with perfect peace. And one way I see this among God's people today, among Christians today, is we replace in bramble we trust with well, we, we replace in God we trust with in Bramble we trust through politics, politicians, right? And all the while, what we're doing by our character, our actions, though we may be blinded by it at the moment, we're revealing that we idolize politics. And we do this when we sin with our tongue by the things we say. We forget about James 3, as if God never said anything about our speech, whether in person or online. And some of the more blatant things that happens in our own sin, our own downward spiral when we're unrepentant is disunity and division even amongst Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, treating each other like enemies rather than making peace. You're definitely not practicing the one another's of the New Testament when you cut off believers who are not on your party side. I read an article that was helpful for me during the last election period because it offers a healthy heart check when I sense I'm being swept up and consumed with political news, arguments, reading people fight and bash each other online that I realize this really isn't making me more godly or holy. It just makes me more angry and clinging less to Christ. And so since I know elections are coming up, well, local uh, at least, uh, I, I want to just share uh, just a, a few questions from a, a pastor and go Gospel Coalition writer by the name of Joe Carter. Uh, you can read the article online uh, for free on the Gospel Coalition website. But a few questions to examine yourself with you as you have a heart-to-heart -heart with God. Have I spent more time listening to talk of politics on social media, talk radio, cable news, and so on, that spent time in the word of God or with gospel-centered media? Do I look for excuses to judge my ungodly behavior when it comes to politics rather than asking for forgiveness from God? Have I become more obsessed with achieving a specific political outcome than I am about leading people to Christ? Am I more likely to be shaped by the political views of an acquaintance on Facebook than I am by the inspired words of God? Do my concerns about political outcomes show that I may not tr truly trust that God is sovereign over the nations? You see, the danger for us as believers is the idolatry of politics and idolizing fallen human leaders. You see, the concern in the book of Judges isn't primarily politics or tribal leaders. Their problem was spiritual in nature, but that spiritual aspect affects every other dimension of their life. They got the kind of leader they deserved. Why? Because they didn't want God to rule over their life and worship and their conduct. 
So instead, they place their hope and trust in evil men. May that not be said of us, for we ultimately trust in a sovereign king, Jesus, who reigns in heaven and will reign on earth again one day, where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is king. And so our priority as God's people today is to worship the king. Our mission, whatever city, state, or nation we may live in, is to make gospel-transformed disciples of all people. And so that's all I want to say about that. As God's people gather here on the Lord's Day, we don't need more political news perspective. We need news from another network, the Bible. So let's look at the third part of Judges 9 where we see his, this horror drama come to a conclusion. Thank you, sister, sister, for reading all those verses. There's a lot in here. So far in the story of Abimelech, as we pause and consider what's transpired, we need to ask the question, where is God in all of this? Where's God? It's a good question to consider because so far it seems if evil is just taking its course. Is God really just? It's a question we sometimes ask. Well, verse 22 says, Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. And just after that, the narrator points out in verse 23, God is there. And God will be the one that delivers his people from within. So when it says God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders in Shechem, it doesn't necessarily mean the spirit was demonic or evil. It's an expression of what the spirit brought about on Abimelech. Misfortune, calamity, harm was what the spirit sent and brought upon the person or object of judgment. And that spirit brings ominous conditions upon the person. And so for the rest of the chapter, what we're going to see is that sometimes it doesn't appear that God is at work or that God is not there, but he is. God is already judging Abimelech. God does see evil. God does see man's sin. And divine retribution is coming. Divine providence is at work. And God does this by creating division amongst the leaders of Shechem and Abimelech. Whatever friendship and agreement they had before, it quickly dissolved. The turning against Abimelech begins with leaders of Shechem, and it basically becomes, they basically become like mountainside robbers. And things escalate quickly because nowhere this guy named, this, the guy named Gaal relocates to Shechem and quickly gains their trust. He comes from nowhere. So the leaders and, and Gaal, Gaal, party it up, crash an idol temple. And the climax of this drunken party is that they curse Abimelech. And so Gaal, the man from nowhere, promises that if the men of Shechem follow him, he would take Abimelech out of the picture. So Gaal challenges Abimelech to gather his forces and meet him. But word about the plan got out. Zebul was like an officer or governor, the right hand to Abimelech. And he discreetly warns Abimelech of the plan set up against him and suggests a tactical response that should yield an easy victory. And so how do things work out? Verses 34 to 41 is the next scene. Basically, he entrusts Zebul to work his strategic magic through the element of surprise on Gaal and his men. And so when they confront Zebul, Gaal tries to distract Zebul. It's kind of comical when you read it. It's like an intense battle is about to take place. Tensions are high, right? And who's going to make the first move? And Baal is telling the enemies of all, hey, turn around for a second, will you? Oh, look at the bird in the air. Oh, watch out. You're about to get flanked. 
Turn around right now. I'm just looking out for you. But Zebul doesn't fall for it. He calls God's bluff, basically saying, got nothing to say after all that big talk about Abimelech being a nobody. And after that, they clash. Gaal and his relatives end up losing. Many of them hurt while Gaal escapes. Now that Gaal and his relatives were out of the picture, you would think that Abimelech would be calm, would be collected. But no, the common people of Shechem try to live their normal lives by going out in the field. But Abimelech, the guy who turned on his own brothers, now even turns on his own innocent residents. As they try to leave the city for the field to maintain their life, uh, the, uh, there's like usually a, a gate, a, a wall to kind of leave the, the main city to, to work like the crops outside of the, the, the gate. He ambushes them outside the city gates and kills the residents. He and his men then move up to the city gate where they fight all day and end up killing everyone in the city. And then in verses 46 to 49, the leaders of a tower in Shechem, which was not overtaken yet, heard what had happened. So they fled and barricaded themselves at an idol temple. Apparently not all of the city was taken over, perhaps only the outer area of the gate uh, where those initial residents were killed, where the common folks lived and worked. So Abimelech heard about the Shechemites fleeing to this, this tower of a, or the, a temple of refuge. And what he ends up doing is cut down brushwood, encourage his men to follow after his example. They surround this stronghold with brushwood and then lit it up, burning and killing a thousand people. And in doing so, Jotham's fable in verse 15 is fulfilled. The people of Shechem refused to find shade in the Bramble King. And for that, they would be burned. And so, so far you're thinking, okay, Jotham's fable was fulfilled, but I still don't see God's justice. Does he just escape? Was Jotham wrong about the curse that would devour Abimelech? And if you follow the story, you'll see he's even more confident to expand his geographical realm by attempting to repeat what just happened? This time, a, a group of people in Thebes. It's like a deja vu moment for Abimelech, but this time something different happens. As he rushes the tower to set the bottom on fire, verse 53 is the, the key turning point. If Eglon uh, getting stabbed with a knife that just sank the entire knife into his fat was your favorite story growing up as a child, as a kid, this is probably not too far off. At least it, it, it was for me. It wasn't for me. This is probably my second favorite one in the judges. A friend of mine who is a pastor preached this passage before, and he kind of used this analogy that basically says, Abimelech dies because of a KitchenAid appliance. It's thrown at him from a, from a tower. Uh, to be more historically accurate, it's more of like a, a mortar and pestle, right, appliance. But still, what an embarrassing way to go for Mr. Bramble King. And there's much more that we could say about Abimelech meeting his demise, but first, notice he dies from one millstone. What that symbolizes is that God's justice has come full circle, right? Because didn't Abimelech try to kill the 70 sons on one stone? And so now he dies by one stone. Second, as he's about to die from his skull getting crushed, he's more worried about his pride and ego given the last thing he's thinking about before dying is the fact that a woman took him out. It struck at the heart of his pride. 
So to make things more expedient, as if his legacy will be revised in history from the truth getting out, getting out about what really happened, he quickly asked the armor bearer to kill him. And the main takeaway that really wraps up this whole story is found in verses 56 and 57. God's poetic justice for Abimelech's evil. The three years of Abimelech's rule was pretty short-lived, especially when you compare it to the amount of years of deliverance and peace by the other judges used by God, actual judges used by God. So actually, God's people have been saved. And what that results is a period of respite and peace under Tola and Jair in chapter 10, verse 1 through 5. They're considered minor judges, not because they were less important or not as effective, but because there's just not as much recorded in God's word. That's why they're given five verses. But it definitely was a contrast to these three years of horror under Abimelech's leadership. So what do we make of all this? Abimelech was evil to the very core, to the very end. He was unrepentant to the very end. He faced God's justice. He got what he deserved. And though for most of Judges 9, it appears God is not there, we see the reality of God's justice against evil and wrongs actually manifests itself. And he's more present than maybe me and you give God credit for. And just like today, God is sovereign over all, and he will judge evil, all evil, for unrepentant sinners. You see, God's justice ensures that unrepentant people pay for their evil deeds and wrong by facing his judgment. Now, depending on where you stand in your relationship to God today, this applies to you a little bit differently. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, knowing he suffered and paid the penalty for your sin on the cross so that you might be forgiven, these verses should be a great comfort to you. Why? Because you can trust that you've been forgiven for your own evil and rebellion against God. For you, God's justice was supplied by the blood of Christ. For you are now united with Christ and counted as part of God's people. And even the wrongs and evils done to you, the, the evils you've, uh, you've seen done in this world around you because of sin, all those wrongs, all those injustices will be made right one day. And you'll be able to see and witness that. Because there will be a day when we live under Christ's physical rule forever without the presence of sin and evil. And oh, what great hope the gospel of Jesus brings to our everyday lives when we see justices all around us, when we start clinging to these promises of hope in Christ. If you aren't a Christian today, you, you, you're maybe here just sitting, you know, checking out Sunset Church, curious when you're walking along the street to just come in here and listen to like a message for almost an hour. Uh, we, we welcome you. While we did talk about some very dark stuff today, I hope you would examine your heart and areas in which you've been worshiping idols in your life. Have you continued to live as king over your life, letting your selfish ambition drive your pursuits, your desires, your self-exalting goals and dreams drive your life? May you not be like Abimelech, but turn to Christ. All of us have sought to live a life as if God were invisible and not there. As if we could get away with anything we, we, we want, as long as we don't get caught even. But know this, no one escapes God's judgment. 
for he is perfectly just and sees all. He is the perfect judge. The wrath of God is upon all men who reject Jesus as their Savior and Lord. An eternity of judgment in the lake of fire awaits such people who do not turn to the Lord, who do not need or see their need of rescue from a gracious and loving and kind God who offers the way of escape through Jesus Christ. But the good news is that you may receive Christ too. You may be forgiven no matter what evil or wrong you have committed, though there may be consequences in this life still. But know this, in eternity with God, and having tasted the sweetness of God's grace and forgiveness is infinitely better, infinitely sweeter than continuing to wallow in your own guilt and shame. So confess your need for Jesus and be rescued from his wrath. Not just for the things you've done against others, but ultimately because you have not given up your rebellious rule over your own life and turned to God. And that's why Jesus came to show compassion and the depth of his love for stubborn, unrepentant sinners. And it's not too late if you're still alive. You know, it never ceases me to find gospel comfort, gospel hope, when I turn to these lyrics in a praise song entitled, Come to Jesus. And we'll end on that note. Are you hopeless? Are you guilty? Caught in shame for all your sin. He pursues you to forgive you. Rest in him. He has paid for every failure. Mercy flows in endless streams. Come and follow. Freedom calls you. Rest in him. How sure his compassion for us. Oh, how deep is his love. So come, come to Jesus and rest in him. May God's justice, despite our very own self-exaltation, our own sin, lead us to come to Jesus and find rest in him. For good and just God will not cast out his very own, for there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, despite sin and evil, um, which seems to go unchecked, Lord, as if there is no justice, there is no punishment there is no accountability for our actions. What we learn from Abimelech today, Lord, uh, is that there, there is accountability. Uh, there will be a reckoning uh, if we do not turn to you who offers the way of escape um, through your son, Jesus Christ. And so help us to look to Jesus, Lord. Not only as our Lord and Savior, Lord, but fix our eyes on him our affections, our love, our devotion, Lord, so that we might not be your people who are spiraling downward in unrepentant sin, but turning to you for the gracious and just forgiveness that you provide us by placing the penalty of sin on your son so that we might be called your own. Thank you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.